The following content is explicit. It's Monday, May 29th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Roseanne likened Valerie Jarrett to a resident of the Planet of the Apes, and as a result, Roseanne was canceled. The show, not the person. You can't cancel a person. Though it seems that everyone involved with the reboot of the show would have liked at least to have canceled out the odious and volatile aspects of the star's personality that was clearly a powder keg. Roseanne, which I thought was a very well-done network sitcom that said something a little different from almost everything else on the air, was executive produced, written, and performed by forward-thinking members of the Hollywood creative class who really did have good intentions, but also would have liked Roseanne Barr's propagation of fringe and indeed racist theories to have gone away, and now go away, they all will. To ABC's credit, to their ethical credit and their financial detriment. But the interesting thing to me is the analogy between the power structure at ABC benefiting from the success of Roseanne and the power structure of the GOP, which benefited from their man getting into the White House and then what happened afterwards. So here's the analogy. The titular figure certainly has some conspiracy theories they'd like you to know about. The person at the middle certainly has espoused some untruthful attacks. The person with the name on the enterprise or the building certainly has been called a groundbreaking visionary who the establishment cannot countenance, therefore a rebel. The person who has become this mononym and brand uses the argument of class to repeatedly demonstrate, shall we say, an insensitivity to race. The person making the most money from this status as the truth-telling outsider is actually a really powerful person who attacks any critics who note the repeated tendency to punch down. So when faced with not the hint, not the whiff, not the extremely strong circumstantial evidence of racism, but real racism that's undeniable, each entity had a choice to make. One, a legacy TV network, who is in the business of generating profits, the other a political party who says it's there to represent the ideas of half the population. All right, so here they each are. They're faced with a clear as day outburst of racism from the central figure in their effort. You would hope that in both cases, a powerful person would have this to say. I do absolutely disavow those comments. I think they're wrong. I don't think they're right-headed. And, and the thinking behind it is something I don't even personally relate to. And you would also hope that a statement like this would be nice to hear, too. Sort of like the textbook definition of a racist comment. I think that should be absolutely disavowed. It's absolutely unacceptable. But ABC did not say that. That was, of course, Paul Ryan talking about Donald Trump. But then Paul Ryan continued to endorse Donald Trump, whereas ABC didn't say much but they did rid themselves of Roseanne, ABC could have said, well, we don't like what Roseanne said, but she achieves an end to us, ratings, money, the employment of the cast and crew, an overall good show despite its flaws. But ABC didn't offer those excuses. The Republicans were the ones who twisted themselves into an end justifies the means argument. I personally think the Roseanne show had merit was funny, was full of some useful and well-executed messages about class, 
whereas the Trump campaign had no merit, used phony class concerns as a way to tap into ugly resentments and was miserable in every respect. But putting that aside, when faced with comments that could not be ignored, ABC acted and the GOP excused. There were some within the GOP, Flake McCain, the never-Trump defectors like the strategists Rick Wilson, Mike Murphy, Steve Schmidt. They raised objections, but none of the power brokers did. Elected officials who still had races to run did not express concerns, did not act on those concerns. Oh, there was lots of talk of weighty consciences. Garments were rendered, but support wasn't ended. Here was Utah Congressman Jason Chaffetz. I'm out. I I can no longer endorse Donald Trump for president. There's no possible way I vote for Hillary Clinton, but um, these are abhorrent. They are wrong. To use a baseball metaphor, I got to call balls and strikes the way I see them. And then he balked. He said he voted for Trump, though he clarified he did not endorse Trump. This would be as if ABC didn't endorse Roseanne, but still kept airing Roseanne. So in the end, we have a television network whose job it is to make money by drawing eyeballs. And you have a political party whose job it is to put forth candidates and ideas to improve the lots of all Americans. And the network acts ethically and the party acts awfully. You could argue that it was just in the interest of ABC to cauterize the wound and to disassociate themselves with a toxic property. Can't you say the same thing about the GOP? I don't believe in the culture war because I don't think that the uh, purveyors of culture are fighting the same fight as the critics of culture, especially when those critics are politicians whose job it is to offer up policies. But here was a case when a political party was put to shame by a TV network. And the network, of course, never claimed any righteousness greater than amorality. So in that case, how do we describe the specific morality of the party in question? On the show today, a terrible thing happened to Ivan the Terrible. That's the spiel. Well, Lil Ivan and the painting thereof. But first, his is a television program that could do anything, that could go anywhere. He's Chris Gethard, and he's here now. You know, we here on The Gist, and by we here on The Gist, I mean me here on The Gist. I don't have too many recurring guests. We have our regulars who are committed to a segment, Maria Konnikova with the bullshit thing she does, Chris Malanfi counting down the hits, and then we'll have an author on once or twice, but usually when they've written a new book, a journalist who's uh, covering new things, Fred Kaplan's been on, but you know, it's always some development with uh, North Korea. There is an exception to this, and it is Chris Gethard. This is all preamble to why I'm having Chris Gethard on for the third time. And you're saying because he's funny and an interesting guy to hear from? Yes, yes, true. But he has a show called The Chris Gethard Show because it's an interestingly named show. No. Because while I call it a show, it is so many different shows. So in a way, I've had Chris on three times. This is the third time to talk about his show. But every show, it's just a totally different iteration. There's a little bit of a framework but a different theme. It keeps changing, and so does Chris. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So this is, you you do these things where you define seasons however the hell you want to define seasons, right? Yeah. This is like the second half of the third season these last few months? Contractually, this is the second half of the (laughs) third season, even though it's our first season on a new network. Yeah. And it was split over two years in what seems to me to be two seasons. I've got to get my son to say, contractually, I'm nine, but... 
I'm yes. turning 10. It's a weird thing. <laughs> what I do know is that if you count from the start of our public access days, yes. last week was actually our 200th episode. Wow. Which ones, which ones would you like back? Oh, so many. Well, that's an interesting <laughs> question, isn't it? Because there's so many I'd like back because they didn't go the way that I wanted them to go. But then I feel like as far as what people enjoy watching, those are the ones they tend to like the most. Yes. As you can see, I'm sitting on a dunk tank. The dunk tank has been sadly uh, designed to look like a tropical drink. Um, here's what we're going to do right now. All I'm going to do is just try to have an honest conversation on television with my old friend, Aubrey Plaza. Someone who I've known, we've known each other a decade plus at least. Yeah, a long time. Long, long time. Here's you- the only thing. I'm in a dunk tank. Shannon O'Neill's right over there, throwing balls at that picture in my head. If she hits, I fall in here. Ha, ha, ha. Everybody who loves idiocy gets what they want. But I'm not going to quit on that honest conversation. Let's <laughs> start this up. Aubrey, I know that we're in a very weird circumstance. There's people watching, but just in a very genuine way. Here's one question that I don't ask too often, that I don't get to ask my old friends in particular. Outside of all the entertainment stuff, just on a basic level, how you doing? I'm all right. That was a very revealing sigh. I feel like uh, (laughs) I'm at a crossroads right now. Really? I don't know what I want to do. The joy people take is in my failure, and I've had to just learn how to sort of coexist with that and stand alongside that and go, oh, I guess that is very often when this thing is at its best. Maybe it's that the kind of super fan, and I don't know that there are many casual fans of the Chris Gethard show. I'm sure plenty of people have tuned in, watched it once, and said, what the hell was that? And didn't hate it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They'll tell me to my face sometimes. Oh, that's great. The show is now officially big enough that people will come up to me in a drugstore and say, I watched your show once, I didn't get it, and walk away. (laughs) But I also think that the people who do come up to you and want to impress you, they want to Mm -hmm. name something maybe a little obscure, something that marks them as in the know. You have have a cult of the cultish and so they'll want to say an episode that might be seen as a failure i think so i think there's a lot of truth in that you've always had your finger on the pulse of what i'm up to (laughs) and what i'm going for and i think that's true i also think that you know sometimes i get so worked up because i'm like man we worked so hard on that thing and it didn't go how i went how, how i wanted it to go rather but but uh sometimes the people watching that embrace that not because they like laughing at me when it fails but because they're like oh this is this is real. This it marks isn't... it as yeah. authentic. And that's a word that attaches itself to you. But it's one of those weird words when you really think about it. Everything is inauthentic, even the authentic. I mean, mm-hmm. you tell – I've seen you tell a couple of times a story about when you were in that horrible car accident. Mm-hmm. You're essentially – your life was saved or at least maybe uh, saved by a racist. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. uh-huh. And so every time – you've probably told that how many times on stage? Between one and 200 times at least. Right. So when the 187th time that you told it, many audience members will say, wow, that was so authentic. But it was honed and it was pared down and it was the 187th version, which isn't to say it was inauthentic. But what do you think they really mean? Something like approachable or? Yeah, it's not real, but I might be able to convince you that it's realer than you think. And that there's real emotion behind it. And I might be able to. And a lot of the best things to me, a lot of the best Boiled down, distilled entertainment. Andy Kaufman, another hero of mine, someone who pretty much did exclusively things that were visibly fake. Tony Clifton is about as inauthentic as you can get, but the rage the audience felt was very, very real. So I think, as far as the authenticity of my show, I think I think we're tapping into that style of authenticity in the sense of 
it's more a TV show than it's ever been. The, the larger platforms that we get to, the more commercial, the more mainstream, it's obviously going to be more of a TV show than it's ever been. But the flame I'm always trying to fan is this idea of uh, it's me. It's really me. And I'm letting my guard down. And as much as you possibly can on television, I'm trying to let those moments slip through. And what you see is what you get from me and my friends. And uh, it's not always perfect. And it's not always easy. And, it, and we're, not gonna, we're not a late night show that's going to do something successful and then repeat it once a week for eternity. Right. We are restless people who like to let our guard down, like to experiment, like to try things, like to let you see that happen. It's a TV show. They know it's entertainment. They know it's not real. But it's a little realer than you usually get with TV, I'd like to think. We just had Michael Beasley from the New York Knicks on the show. Yeah. And I tell you, we're we're doing this thing, and it's like a big, crazy, absurdist show. And then right in the middle of the show, he goes, uh, I asked him, I said, how many cities have you lived in? And he goes, you're asking me that because of my career, right? I'm like, yeah, well, you've played for so many franchises. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah. He, but- was this, he was this legendarily great high school player, and then he came into the league as, ooh, maybe this guy will be almost like LeBron James. And yeah. he was seen as terrible, but he wasn't really terrible. No, he wound he just- up having a great career. He was the number two draft pick, never yeah. maybe fulfilled that level, but is still dumping in points in a way where yep. you're like, oh, he's better than we... He's not as good as that hype, but he's better than we ever gave him credit for. And he just looked at me and he was like, you know, everybody asks me that question because of my teams I've played for, but... I've, I lived in many cities when I was a kid before basketball was a thing. People forget that. People, see, people think that I'm, I'm just a basketball player, but it's like I was a whole person before that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. People forget that. I was a person before that, so I had a whole life before basketball. Yeah. <laughs> I love that he just got to say that. You got this infamous sort of like journeyman player who just guts it out saying, I'm a real human being and basketball is not the only thing that defines me. That manages to kind of slip through. Like, this feels like my attempt to almost, like, produce a glitch in the Matrix. Where you have, like, <laughs> this weird show that looks so dumb and absurd on the surface. And then that's one of the more real things he'll ever get to say on TV, I think. So I get why I get why John Hamm wants to do the show. I get why Ellie Kemper wants to do the show. I get why people who aren't even on that one Netflix series <laughs> want to do the show. But really big stars, uh, Paul Giamatti. Why does Beasley, does he watch? Is there something that connects with him i don't quite know like beasley 41 nights a year goes into a stadium where twenty thousand people boo him if he succeeds and root for him to fail like the pressure of my show is nothing it's funny we actually saw if you watch his interviews he's just a very thoughtful guy he's like kind of a more thoughtful weird dude than uh than a lot of basketball players seem to be at least publicly and uh some of his interviews were just very trippy and philosophical and i was like i think he'll be a good guest and his people looked at the show and were like you know what we think he'll like this vibe and he showed up he said he's had more fun than he's had in a long while and me and my uh, friends I'm I'm in a league I'm in a like rec league with a bunch of other dudes who are pushing 40 he's like if you ever need a sub to come (laughs) off season I'm always looking for runs so me and Beasley just clicked I don't know I think uh I think sometimes people walk in and go oh I will never quite understand this environment because it's insane. But I, I underneath it, I, I kind of feel how the heart of it is beating. And I think Michael Beasley falls into that category. <laughs> There's a willingness to embrace your own vulnerability and the vulnerabilities of those around you. And it's not a knock on a show I love, which is Colbert, right? But mm-hmm. I think he does what he does extremely well, and I think he really found his niche with political comedy. But it's not about vulnerability or the host's vulnerability. It's just a different thing. 
He's kind of being authentic to what his niche is. You are to yours. There are a few shows that are a little caught in the middle where the host wants to be really likable, but then also do some hard political things. But there's a little bit of a stumbling block to really get behind. Yeah. I've never, you know, maybe to the frustration of some people who have, you know, put some money. Funded. Funded (laughs) my work. Enterprise. I just don't know that making something easy for people who want something easy is is what I'm destined to do. You know, it's right. We had Will Ferrell on this year and we did something so dark and strange and inaccessible that this is true. <laughs> Online conspiracy theorists, like these Pizzagate guys, yeah. isolated the footage yeah. and have analyzed it. It's got a hundred over 100,000 views where they're all like, this is proof that Will Ferrell is part of a Hollywood satanic conspiracy. Remove the subject's clothes. <laughs> Let us stare upon his baby skin. And there's a lot of people who I think were upset with me going, you had the biggest guest you'll ever get, so many eyes on it, and you did the least accessible thing. We had a whole fake cult ceremony dedicated to trying to get our ratings up that ended with me being born out of a six-foot-tall vagina. Sure. When all eyes are on me, I tend to go, okay, what's the... What's the biggest swing I can take? And if it's off-putting or confusing or strange or dark, let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because then I'm the one who's like, how come everybody doesn't get it? And it's like, oh, because I make things that are really hard to get and I'm proud of it. If everyone got it, there'd be, you know, dozens of different kinds of six-foot vaginas on network TVs and all the hosts and diapers. But let me tell you, Will Farrell's probably done... A thousand, one thousand five hundred just late night talk show appearances, and he will never forget yours. I think so. And he said that he's been on twice now, and he both times he has said this is the most fun you can have. You go on live TV, you just see what happens. It's yeah. a, and 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 similar to why I think you and I have always clicked. If I may, just pull back the curtain a little bit. Like you showed up, you sat down, we got talking. Yeah. I offered you a donut. You did. You gave me a donut. I ate half of it. It's delicious. Can't wait to finish the rest of it later. But a lot of TV shows, what people don't know, but I think that they sense, is a lot of times someone calls you the day before and they ask you 10 questions and you give your answers on the phone and then you get there the next day and they have a literal script where they go, okay, we're going to ask you these four of the 10, the host like these answers. And they'll punch up your anecdote. They will literally go, exactly. Even if it's not what really happened I in know. Real life. And now this whole thing is a scramble for them to look in a teleprompter, hit the bullet pointed questions and it's on me to give concise versions of the answers. They've already signed off and given a thumbs up. Me personally, I, and again, I... I am grateful for every show I've been on. I respect everybody. I could just never do that. I could just never do that. It feels like I'm lying to the audience. We never have had an applause sign. We've never had a cheer sign. We don't have producers go out and lead people in claps. If they don't want to clap or they don't want to laugh, I'm happy to bomb on TV. And again, maybe that's a bad thing. But in my heart and my gut, I think that's the right thing. At this point in your contractually defined second and a half season, (laughs) is it harder for you and the writers to come up with ideas or is it harder to – I I might imagine, this might not be the case, that you come up with so many ideas and then the difficulty is in the culling? We are coming up with ideas that are still public access ideas. Yeah. 
And uh, we are on a network now, and, and there is a whole approval process where the network gets to check in and let us know whether they like the ideas or not. And I will say, we just had a conversation the other day where we were like, we want to do an episode where we all wear adult diapers on air, and we just keep chugging water, and we weigh ourselves at the beginning, and we weigh ourselves at the end, and whoever has urinated the most and added the most to their diaper wins. Oh, you weigh the diapers? We weigh the diapers, right, yeah. Right. We're going to call it the Pissy Pants Challenge. Okay. And the network said, well, we'd rather not have that on our airwaves. And we had to say, they're well within their rights to not want to let us go piss our pants on TV live. That's a, very, a totally fair request. Let's, we, we have other ideas, too. So if anything, I would say that as writers, it's, it's not that we're running dry on ideas. It's sometimes I think that we're still coming up with ideas that are actually impossible. There's actually some ideas where we will pitch them and they'll go, yeah, but... How will you do that? Give me an example of that. We had a writer. She writes for Jimmy Fallon right now. She's killing it. Her name's Joe Firestone. She is known around New York for coming up with the weirdest conceptual ideas. And I remember she came up with one called Space Olympics, (laughs) where she said, I want to turn our entire studio into an anti-gravity chamber and then do Olympic events in zero gravity. Yeah. And we actually spent time trying to figure out if there was any way to do that. No, you have to go on the vomit comet. Like it can't yeah, like, be but we were having those conversations. Do we call a carnival and see if we can get a gravitron? Can a gravitron fit in our studio? You know that thing that spins really fast. You stick to the walls. We can, do we need? And she pitched that with a straight face as a real idea. We just did an episode a couple weeks ago where we took helicopters to Massachusetts so we could eat weed legally and then we flew back and did a live show Yes, <laughs> where I'm like they're still letting us do that that's one of the fun things you know and it's it's kind of a trope of Hollywood but it's like you pitch them something like let's do a thing where we rent two studios of equal heights in New York and do it and this and then they go what are you talking about <laughs> and then we go well can we fly a helicopter to Massachusetts to eat weed brownies and fly back and be on live TV high and the viewers have to guess who's high and who's not and they go thank you for pitching us a normal idea yeah. Finally, Chris Gethard is the host of The Chris Gethard Show on True TV, the contractually defined <laughs> current season's <laughs> final episode, I should say ultimate episode, airs Tuesday. And Chris, in his future, will be eating that second half of the donut. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, as always. And now the spiel. You listen to the news about Russia and you think Russia is all oligarchs and hacker farms and poisoning foreign intelligence officials or your own intelligence officials now on foreign soil. But it's not that. Russia is about life and families and and bears, lots of bears. Some of these bears are neither cozy nor fancy. And while they might not be the bears we know, you know, the of the Berenstein or BJ and the variety, they have their own bears. They have their own likes and they have their own loves and they have their own passions. And, and the passions aren't just violence and vodka. No, your average Russian takes pleasure in, for instance, the arts. Oh, no. One of Russia's most famous paintings scarred in a vodka-fueled rage. Now, the painting in question's title is Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan on November 16th, 1581. And it depicts a clearly horror-stricken Ivan the Terrible cradling his bleeding son. But sometimes, as I read about the story, the title of the painting was reported as Ivan the Terrible 
killing his son, which is quite a bit of difference. Gives a different sheen to the events depicted. You can understand the confusion that I had trying to figure out the name, the actual name of this painting that was attacked from media reports like this. Let me quote the uh, Telegram, the newspaper from the UK. The attacker, who has not been named, used a metal pole to break the glass protecting Ilya Repin's Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan on November 16th, 1581, just before closing time at Moscow's Tryakov Gallery on Friday. There's no real punctuation in that sentence, just a couple commas around the dates. So they're either saying that a man broke the glass and attacked the painting in 1581, just before closing time, and now we're just finding out about it, or that in 1885, the painter Ilya Repkin named his painting Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan on November 16th, 1581, just before closing time at Moscow's Treyakov Gallery on Friday. If he did name it that, it shows a remarkable confidence that his work would be considered a masterpiece. Get a, get a fine showing. But there really is a real question of what the name of the painting really is and why we get two different versions. Is it killing his son or and his son? November 1581. And this gets into why this was no random attack and why it wasn't only vodka that was to blame. The painting was painted in 1885. That was four years after the assassination of Alexander II. Ilya Repin, the artist, was clearly commenting on how the recent violence in his country is an echo of the violence of the past. That's why he named the painting Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan on November 16th, 1581. This is not how paintings were named at the time. This wasn't a convention. This was a reference. It would scan to a Russian audience like if there were a painting recently of a conflagration and a building collapse and the painting were named The Destruction of September 11th, 1801. In fact... Repin considered naming the painting Philicide, you know, the killing of a son, but backed off that title as too controversial. And it was controversial because the painting was attacked over and over again. In fact, it was attacked in 1913 by a man with a dagger. It was also attacked in a lecture after it was attacked by a dagger because the painting was said to be too bloody and too anti-nationalistic. Repin was at one of these lectures and got into a screaming match with one of the critics and the curator of the gallery in 1913. He was so distraught that his painting was attacked that he threw himself under a train or as they called it in 1913 Russia, he caught the A-12 to Vladivostok. Cut to today. Well, cut inside the painting, which was damaged, but not destroyed. And here's RT, which is the westward-facing propaganda arm of the Russian government. This is why you'll hear some odd background music as uh, we use the report to play a couple quotes. So the first thing they do is they put Ivan the Terrible into context or their definition of context because on the screen they say there is controversy around the events depicted in the painting if it was really a filicide, and they quote Vladimir Putin on the subject. It's still not clear whether he killed his son. He's been portrayed as this ultra-violent ruler. But if you look at other countries' rulers at the time, they were no better. So there you have a little whataboutism, a little rewriting of history, framing agreed-upon facts as a controversy. RT also quotes the man who damaged the picture, uh, the, the, the man who damaged the picture this weekend, not the guy from 1913. 
I came to see the painting, I wanted to leave, but then dropped into the buffet and drank 100 grams of vodka. Now, 100 grams of vodka is about two shots, or as they call it in Russia, baby formula. So this whole thing to me is, I think, a fascinating story. One where the American election or America's existence is not on the line. Just a glimpse into Russia. I wonder how the Watka Downing extreme art critic will be treated. Will he be treated like Pussy Riot or someone with, you know, an understandable view about a controversial national incident? The painting can be repaired, the gallery says. The perpetrator faces up to three years in jail. Ivan the Terrible, surviving heir, became the feeble-minded and unfit Fedor, which led to the times of trouble. The times of trouble, of course, marked by a spate of false Dimitris. The false Dimitris were imposters claiming to be the heirs to the throne. Think of them as uh, early 17th century hackers, though all the false Dimitris were found out and executed. So I guess this means that the verification protocols of the time seem a tad more robust than our own. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. His college band was the False Dimitris. They ended each show with the way that False Dimitri One ended his time on Earth. Quote, cremated with the ashes shot from a cannon toward Poland. Mary Wilson is the gist senior producer. She believes you should never take a False Dimitri as a pledge, but an honest to goodness Olga? Now them ladies are true blue. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He had a false Dimitri cover band in college called the Airsats Yavignis. They dissolved the band and went into the taxi medallion business. The gist, our Dimitris are 99 and 44 one hundredths pure. But our Svetlanas are quite filthy, actually. Umpuru depuru dupuru. And please listen to Upon Further Review. New episode today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>